is Bloomberg Surveillance. We're still getting a GDP effect from housing. It's adding about three-tenths to GDP growth, almost as much as it's ever going to do. Video is enormous. There's a tectonic shift taking place where young, wealthy people who all advertisers worship the grail of are leaving broadcast TV. There is definitely a contingency in the Republican Party that feels left behind by this recovery, and Republicans are going to have to address that in 2017. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning. I'm Michael McKee in New York. Francine Lacroix sitting in today for Tom Keene. She joins us from London, and we are both on Central Bank Watch. It is 7 a.m. on Wall Street. It is 8 p.m. in Tokyo today. The Federal Reserve makes its latest decision, 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And then we get the Bank of Japan overnight. You'll wake up and have that decision. So there is a lot to talk about, both affecting the markets. A lot of earnings today, as we mentioned, and one just coming out now, Comcast, first quarter adjusted earnings per share, 84 cents. The consensus forecast was for 79 cents. So Comcast beats. There's also a story this morning that Comcast is out uh, looking to buy DreamWorks, which they could fold into their Universal Studios package. So a lot going on uh, with Comcast. Ahead of the central bank decisions, mixed markets. Europe is higher. The stock 600 is up by a tenth of a percent. The DAX up by 29, three-tenths of a percent. Tokyo today finished lower by four-tenths. Uh, Nikkei off by 64 points. That'll probably turn around by the time we speak to you tomorrow. In the U.S., futures are lower, and this may be more due to earnings than Certainly the Fed, which is not expected to do anything. The S&P off by six points, three-tenths of a percent. The Dow, two-tenths lower, 40 points. You really see it in the NASDAQ, off 49 points, 1.1 percent. Apple, the story there. Apple reporting uh, disappointing earnings last night. And Apple shares at the moment are down by, let me get a quote here, 7.7 percent in the pre-market trade. The bond market ahead of the Fed decision is trading a little bit flatter. The 10-year note yield at 1.9, down three basis points. The five-year at 1.37, and the two-year is at 85 basis points right now. Story of the morning in France been all over this, friend. Uh, interesting to see what's happening with oil. West Texas, 44.95 right now. Brent crude, 46.75. But WTI got up to 45.13, and Brent got up to 47.05. You were noting that uh, we breached some technical levels there. Yeah, and Mike, I really love this story because, first of all, uh, we have always been interested in oil, sure, but actually what we saw in the last three to four months is that it was a real correlation between the S&P and a lot of the stocks to oil. And you're right, that 45 level for WTI, 47 for Brent, brings us back to November of 2015. Now, these are technical levels, but they're also increasingly important because there's a large majority of people watching the oil market saying, even if we go up, it won't go far beyond 50 because, again, if you think of the swing producers, if you think of OPEC in the past, it was Saudi uh, that could, with a switch on or switch off the tap, change the markets. And now it's all about U.S. Uh, shale producers. And around 50, they can just switch on the taps. Well, let's bring in uh, our first guest, George Kinkalvis, now. He's Nomira's head of U.S. rates strategy. And ask him, first of the year, George, everybody was concerned about oil prices there was a, a big worry that uh, U.S. producers, exploration and production companies, the frackers, were going to go bust. That was going to lead to uh, defaults in the high-yield space, and that was going to bring down the rest of the bond market. 
are, are we ready to declare that uh, oil prices are making that uh, not a worry at this point? If you were to fr- freeze time and look at where we are now, and if oil continues to move from here, then no, you would not. But the problem is it's a very dynamic market, very fluid, uh, we should say. Um, and although you can point to the supply-demand imbalance as what's driving oil prices, it, you know, to, to Francine's Francois, point, I mean, it definitely is very technical. It feels like the market has caught a trend. And these trend-following traders are probably what's driving this more so than the geopolitics and the sort of rhetoric that we heard out of the Doha deal or lack of a deal. And so I think that if it's a very technical market, we have to be careful because it can always snap back the other way. So I think that people are, are optimistic that it's turned, but they're not quite there yet to say that the coast is clear. George, I spent oh, oh, many, many, many days uh, trying to doorstep a lot of OPEC ministers, and I always used to try and get a figure out of them. And at the time, we're talking about 70. Is there a magic number when it comes to the price of barrel? Is it 50? And if we do reach 50, again, is that only a technical level, or does it bring promise of recovery? Well, I think each region, each country has their own uh, targets in mind. Um, I think for the U.S. point of view, I mean, the numbers you've referred to, 50 to 60, is, it, it is the sweet spot. So some Somewhere in the middle there would make, make sense to to get the frackers, um, you know, really out of harm's way and, and not have to really tap into credit markets again and, and hope, hope to use the cash flow from higher oil prices to pay back their loans. But you need to keep it there, right? So the question is, you know, are we making a move now above this technical level 45 towards 50, and will it stay there, and therefore they'll be able to pay back their loans and then eventually become profitable. And I think that's the key question. People are, I, mean, I think, the conversations I have with folks and just the overall gauge of, the, of, of how I see things in the market, people are not really convinced that it's going to stay here. Uh, how big a concern was the whole high-yield space? Was that an overblown issue for the markets? Look, I think in general um, – the high yield market plays a critical role uh, in, in, in conjunction with the you know, uh, investment grade market. There's been a lot of issuance in the corporate bond sector. It's helped stock buybacks. It's helped you know, uh, finance a lot of these energy companies. So it is an important uh, you know, piece of the financial landscape. And so you know, if we were to see oil you know, at 20 like it felt like it was going to, that would have been a big problem for us, for the U.S. economy, for U.S. financial sector, for sure. All right, big day, uh, not just in oil prices, but uh, for central banks. For your constituency, the U.S. rates market, what's the most important thing, oil prices, the Bank of Japan, or the Federal Reserve? I would actually probably go in the order of Bank of Japan, oil, then the Fed. Uh, I think the Fed obviously plays a key role in setting short-term rates. Long-term rates are driven by supply demand and by what's happening around the world and inflation expectations. And if oil continues to move higher, as we've been discussing, then, you know, inflation expectations will go up, curve will stay steeper, long-term rates will do some of the discounting for the Fed. And so that's a critical piece of the puzzle. But Bank of Japan, I think, you know, plays a pivotal role in the next couple of hours uh, in hopefully trying to change sentiment over there about, yeah, what took place in Q1 with their launch of negative rates was not really well taken, and I think they have an opportunity now to tweak their programs, try to do more credit easing instead of just charging negative rates, uh, and actually try to incentivize the banks to lend. And I think if they can do that in conjunction with some fiscal policy in, in May and June, Japan can really turn the corner here, and that would force people that are hiding in bonds in Japan as well as those Japanese investors that have been buying treasuries to, to kind of lighten up on some of their fixed income, and that would also push up rates, 
and kind of do the job of the Fed as well. So I think in, in order, it's really you know, Bank of Japan, oil, and the Fed. But, George, I'm not even sure how to measure success uh, for BOJ and actually for Japan, because Abenomics for the moment is not really working. Do you measure success as a weaker yen, or do you measure success as uh, limiting the impact of negative rates? I think changing the sentiment and, and measuring success, you know, from like a more definitive metric, I mean, looking at the Nikkei, the Nikkei will be your your first place to notice if there's a, you know, a vote of confidence in what what's changed overnight when, when we get the news. I think that matters more. I think, you know, a, a slightly higher term structure and, and higher long-term rates out of Japan would also be viewed as a success that people are not just hoarding bonds and they're willing to you know, put some of their money to work into other assets. So I think that, that to me, would be the measure of success. But I, I'm with you. I think that there's, you know, the burden of proof is now on, on, on them to kind of change this negative outlook that people have around what's going on there. And I think it's, it has to start tonight. Are they taking a big risk, though? If, if they do something strong enough to make an impression on the markets and it doesn't work, I mean, what then? I mean, markets are fickle in the short run, but in the long run they would realize that if it is a real proper change in, in approach and they're really genuinely trying to get credit markets to open up in Japan and lending to improve, then I think the fundamentals would take over. So I don't think the markets are, are going to be that foolish. And if it's a big enough change and it's meant in, to be in the right direction. I've only got a, a, about 30 seconds left, but yeah. um, it, what would the change need to be? Just additional monetary policy that moves the yen around isn't going to do it. What would be credible to tell you that something has changed in the long run? I mean, I think – they're never going to hint that there's more fiscal policy because that's not their domain. But I think lining up um, their easing so that if there is more fiscal policy down the road, it would help to kind of implement that fiscal policy. They're already buying a ton of bonds already, so that's that's not, not going to be it. I think it needs to be you know, a combination of more lending programs and ETF purchases. And if there ever is a need for a more easing, they're going to be open for it. All right, George Goncalves is with us from Nomura, head of uh, U.S. fixed income. We will talk about the Fed, we promise. <laughs> right now, the yen is trading at 111.26, uh, the key rate. Uh, out of uh, all of what is happening over the next 24 hours, according to George. Uh, dollar index is still weaker, 94.388, as the Fed prepares to meet this afternoon. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. And we are brought to you this hour by Mount Kisco Volvo. Visit MountKiscoVolvo.com. Here's Michael Barr with the latest world and national headlines. Mike, thank you very much. Republican Donald Trump will be delivering a speech on foreign policy today in Washington. Yesterday, Trump won in primaries in Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. Trump now has 77% of the delegates he needs to hit the magic number of delegates to win the nomination. Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton is now 90% of the way to her party's nomination after winning four out of five. She only lost in Rhode Island to Bernie Sanders. The Vermont senator told the Associated Press he has a very narrow path and is going to have to win some big victories. Belgium has turned over terror suspect Salah Abdeslam to France for trial. Abdeslam is accused of taking part in a conspiracy in the Paris attacks last year, killing 130 people. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists. I'm Michael Barr. Mike? 
Thank you, Michael. We're watching futures lower in the United States. NASDAQ futures are off 48 points, 1.1%. Probably the disappointment in Apple's earnings last night. Federal Reserve meets today. A decision at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Scarlet Foo, Joe Weisenthal, and I will have all the coverage for you here on Bloomberg Radio. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. A busy morning for earnings. Comcast reporting first quarter profit that beat analyst estimates. So did GlaxoSmithKline, United Technologies, and Anthem. ExamWorks Group, which supplies independent medical examination and other services, agreed to be bought by a unit of the private equity firm Leonard Green & Partners for about $2.2 billion in cash. U.S. stock index futures falling after Apple's first sales drop in more than a decade. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 49 points, or 1.1% this morning. S&P E-mini futures down 6. Dow E-mini futures down 38. The DAX in Germany is up 3 tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury up 8.30 seconds. The yield 1.89%. NYMEX crude oil up 1.8%, or 80 cents, to 44.82 a barrel. COMEX gold is up 4 tenths percent, or $4.40, to 12.47.80 an ounce. The euro, $1.1313, the yen, 111.27. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Mike and Francine. Karen, thank you so much. So treasuries rising for the first time in eight days. Higher yields beginning to entice investors. Of course, it's all about the Fed. Will they hold? Will they not? Will they give us more of an insight on what they will do in June? If anything, let's get back to the central bank conversation. Uh, we're still joined by George uh, Goncalves, head of U.S. rate strategy for fixed income at Nomura. George, we we're talking a little bit before about the BOJ. The Fed, I would argue, is also just as interesting because there's been so much dovishness on the market. That is, if Chair Yellen is that little bit more hawkish, we may see a sell-off. Well, listen, I mean, the bond market has been discounting some of that for the last eight days, as you mentioned, and it's interesting that we're heading into the meeting with the Treasury market actually rallying a couple basis points here and there. Really not a huge signal, but still not going in the right direction. So, I mean, I, I do think, look, um, they, they did a, a quick about-face at the end of Q1 and early part of Q2 really, you know, linking their views to these global factors and international concerns really have taken a, a greater importance for them. However, a lot of the issues that they were highlighting have kind of gotten better. I mean, in China it is at least somewhat stabilizing versus what people were fearing in Q1. Oil has improved notably. Emerging markets in general have seen pressure taken off of them. And the dollar has kind of gone sideways to slightly weaker. There's really no excuse for them not to be a little bit more hawkish, given how dovish the bond market is pricing. The question is, can they actually deliver the right message? And can they? Are, are they over-delivering? Are they over-messaging? Look, I, th I think um, there's a little bit of latency here. There's a little bit of a, a assessing what happened and then kind of communicating. I think, I mean, obviously they're, they're watching the markets and, and they, they're in, in real time. But I think that, you know, as they calibrate their models, there, it takes time to understand what the full impact is. I think, you know, all else equal, if they were to, you know, come out and just say that, you know, the balance of risks are not as skewed to the downside or if something that doesn't sound like they're worried about things getting worse but at least stabilizing, stability might be viewed as hawkish in this, in this very perverse world that we live in. Uh, but if they do nothing and, and 
are as bland as possible, don't they risk at some point falling behind uh, the curve uh, and, and bringing the bond vigilantes out of, out of the woodwork? There are a lot of people who say they're already behind and that there are questions about the Fed's credibility. Well, look, I'd love to find the bond vigilante that's still out there. If you have anyone's email address, please let me know. <laughs> I mean, uh, the bond vigilantes or the or the, those that are more on the hawkish side and, and concerned about higher rates have either gone into hibernation or are just non-existent. And I think partly as a, a reflection of this multiple years of dovish Fed and low rates, I think the Fed would not mind being behind the curve and actually would encourage some of those bond vigilantes to come out of those caves wherever they may be. As long as it's for the right reasons, if the market is, if the economy is improving, inflation is going higher, if the Fed is staying behind the curve and the bond market does the work for them, I think the Fed would be too upset with that. They've been struggling with why does the bond market never believe them in the first place. If the bond market were to find religion and say, oh, look, the Fed's forecast maybe will be realized in the future, that's not so bad a thing. Well, there raises an interesting question. We have talked a lot about What's the Fed's reaction function these days? The markets don't know the Fed's reaction function. But does the Fed know the market reaction function anymore? <clears throat> I mean, look, I, I believe that their understanding of the market is much more global than ever before um, and, and that we take information from all parts of the world and try to discount those, those factors in a real-time basis. And, and if you look at, you know, the market used to be much more sensitive to economic data and, of course, jobs data still plays a huge role. But other data has started to lose importance where you can have situations where we had weak data, but yields were going up, which is counterintuitive for the last two weeks. So I think that the in the market, after many years of these low rates and QEs, is, has lost some of its calibration as well. And I think the Fed to only look to the market for guidance would be wrong. I think that the probabilities being as low as they are, if Fed – really wants to hike in June, they have to do something this meeting to start to nudge those higher, to, to Francine's point. Um, so I don't think that there's 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 some crossed wires going on on both sides. Both the Fed and the market are having a hard time understanding each other. I'm just looking at some of the headlines coming through from Larry Fink of BlackRock, and he believes that uh, the Fed will only be able to raise interest rates at best by another quarter point this year. Um, George, if this is the case, why bother at all? How, mu how much do you think that they will raise by in 2016? So, so our house view is, is uh, two hikes per year, which is in line with the Fed, and it's been the, our, our view ever since they started the program back in December. But the risks are skewed to the downside that there's only one hike this year, and, and, I, and I am very sympathetic to that, to that view of you know, only one hike because that one hike – has a magnifying effect when everyone else is still going into negative rates or keeping their rates lower or doing QE. This kind of give and take, globally speaking, all manifests itself with the dollar and with, with short-term rates. And if, if the Fed hikes 25, it might feel like 100 basis points, given wherever, what's going on in the rest of the world. George Gonzalez, thanks for being with us this morning, 2 o'clock this afternoon. We will find out. And then, of course, you say you got to stay up tonight for the Bank of Japan. Yeah, I always, I'm always always up <laughs> all strange hours of the night. So. You may get a call from our bookers uh, <laughs> at that time. Thanks for coming in this morning. He's head of U.S. rate strategy for fixed income at Nomura.
Well, ahead of the Fed, as friend mentioned, we're seeing U.S. bonds rise a little bit. Yields are lower, two basis points for the 10-year, now down to 1.90. The two-year is at 85 basis points. It's only off of uh, one basis point, so a little curve flattening going into today's decision. This is Bloomberg Radio. 2 p.m. this afternoon, the Federal Reserve decides. Joe Weisenthal, Scarlett Fu, and I will bring you all of the Fed's language in their statement and a lot of reaction here on Bloomberg Radio. 